0: Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome and thank you very much for joining us today. I recently had the great pleasure of talking with Eduardo Cohn about his recent book, How Forests Think, Toward an Anthropology Beyond the Human. This came out in 2013 with the University of California Press. This book is grounded in a very rich, uh, very deep, um, and a really wonderful ethnography of a particular village in Ecuador's upper Amazon. It uses that ethnography to, to both give a very detailed and a very pointed account of the context that Cohn is talking about, but also to open up much more broadly the way it's possible for us to think about and with non-human selves. Now, what that looks like will become clear um, in much more detail once you get to the course of the conversation, but it's really, I think, a tremendously important intervention in how we tend to think about and what we tend to assume about integrating non-human actors into our stories about science studies, our stories about the world. I love this book. It's been completely transformative for me. I've been teaching with it. I've been going back over and over the chapters since I first read it. Um, It's really completely changed how I think about and how I work with selves, non-human entities, and notions of space and of being and of life and of death and the kind of material that I work with. It's also beautifully written. It's very moving and it will give you ways of thinking about and thinking with dreaming and dreams, not just of people, but also of dogs and of other entities. It's a wonderful accounting of animals, of forests, of water, of people, of language, And it's just a beautiful and extraordinarily compelling, I think, and very challenging work. And so I hope you have a chance to read the book. I hope you enjoy it. And I hope you also enjoy the conversation. And I can't emphasize enough how much that I have really enjoyed both. I'm here today to talk with Eduardo Cohn about his awesome new book, How Forests Think, Toward an Anthropology Beyond the Human. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, Eduardo, and thanks very, very much for making time to talk with me today about this book. I really loved it, and I'm really, really looking forward to it. So thank you.
1: Thanks so much, Carla, and thanks for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you.
0: Of course. So let's talk a little bit about yourself and your background as it pertains to the book. Specifically, you talk early on at the very beginning of the book about having a a kind of a deep family connection to work and life in Amazonia, which is where the book is set. So what brought you to start at the very beginning of um, probably a long process? What brought you to the anthropology of Ecuador's upper Amazon? How did you come to this broad field that you're working in today?
1: Well, I my my parents are are children of European Jewish Jewish refugees who escaped uh, the Holocaust and went to Ecuador. Uh, so many of my uh, relatives live in Ecuador, and I was extremely close to my grandmother, who was an amateur archaeologist, and my grandfather, who was a pharmaceutical chemist, who was going into the Amazon. So I would spend a lot of time with them when I was a kid, um, and I think that's basically how I got started. Um, I actually met, as I mentioned in the book, I met my the person who was going to be my uh, my PhD advisor when I was twelve uh, in my grandmother's house. So I was there from very early on, and that's uh, I started traveling into the Amazon and kind of got hooked uh, mm-hmm. trying to figure out what what's going on in this really complicated forest. That, uh, that was just very interested. I found it very interesting.
0: So why, um, given the the fact that you had this kind of connection already early on with this area, how did you come to anthropology as a disciplinary home for exploring the kinds of issues you were interested in within that region?
1: Well, it's, I mean, I guess I did get, uh, obviously, anthropology is about the study of people. Um, And I think what I've always drawn me about, so, you know, I could have done it in many other ways, but, and in fact, there were, uh, as I started getting more interested in in tropical biology, there were a couple of biologists who were trying to recruit me to get me to do a PhD in, in tropical biology. And I, I, I realized that anthropology as I knew it uh, was it was basically the, the field that would allow me to do the most kinds of things because at a minimum, um, I could define um, my work based on any number of things that anyone was doing in the field. Um, I later expanded that even further to kind of, in some ways, go beyond the human and anthropology itself through anthropology. But um, I didn't. When I started doing research, I, I actually didn't. I didn't really. I didn't really know about science studies or any other kind of framework that w- was would allow this. So this was seemed to me the best. Uh, mm-hmm. But of course, I also am very committed to. I've, I'm always. I've always been very committed to anthropology um, eth- uh, through the method of eth- ethnography, and the sort of insistence of really, uh, you know, well, really going deep into, say, learning languages and things like that. So my work was done in, in the in the in the in the field language, and um, you know, I spent a lot of time doing sort of traditional ethnographic fieldwork, which I'm still methodologically very committed to. Mm
0: -hmm. So the book itself, very, very briefly put, and we're going to go into lots and lots more detail about what this means and what the consequences and implications are, the book itself proposes, as you um, just alluded to, an anthropology beyond the human. So we'll talk in more detail about what that means and how it unfolds in the course of the book. But before we do that, to get us started, can you talk a little bit about how you came to that particular focus? So we've moved from the general area to anthropology or ethnography. As um, a kind of disciplinary or um, conceptual set of methodologies, so how and why the uh, the non human or the beyond the human?
1: Well, I I was always as I you know as I just said I was methodologically very drawn to ethnography, and of course I've, I have a deep commitment to. I've spent a lot of time with people in, in Ecuador, and I just have a so there's a kind of a draw to uh anthropology for that reason both methodologically and also in terms of the subject matter but i was never i I always found it problematic that certain things that, that things could only be talked about um in terms of cultural construction or social construction or historical contingency um and that was always something that um that that from the very beginning, was was an issue for me, and and I had some sort of instinct even before I had sort of uh, formulated it that that somehow uh, interacting, doing ethnography with people who are doing something that doesn't only involve humans would be. A way to get at this but I, it was very uh, even when I was doing my dissertation it wasn't I didn't really have a clear framework for how how this is actually going to work. I just knew that if I looked in this area and, and listened um, something interesting was happening.
0: So, did the project, or how you were thinking about it, narrating it, um, constructing it, envisioning it, change in any kind of significant way from the dissertation stage to the manuscript stage? Were there any major transformations in that process that reshaped how you approached or thought about what you were doing in the book?
1: Yes, I mean the the dissertation, the diff, the, the the project is the same. Most of the field work that I did for the for what is the book was done during the dissertation, uh, and um, but the dissertation and the book are completely different. I mean, I don't think there's more. There are probably more than a few paragraphs or sentences that are the, that are the same. Um, and it changed a lot, largely by um, basically following much more carefully what things that were insights or hunches about what was going on say, in, in, the, in the dissertation, I, I kind of focused on a few things. Uh, for example, you know, this bizarre thing that comes up later on in chapter four about dog dreams and why dog dog dreams are different from human dreams or and things like that. And these things which I sort of was able to sort of identify as interesting problems and was able to sort of discuss the ethnography, uh, I wasn't really able to fully get to the bottom of what was going on and what the implications were for what we were doing as anthropologists. So So the book really... Allowed me to to really kind of build over a very long period of time a much more sustained reflection on what was going on, and it is a, a slow book. The book I was I basically um, it was I was roughly about a decade in, in in writing it after the dissertation. So it was really it's a very special moment in my life. Um, it was a kind of a funny parallel universe. One, well, one of course was the actual ethnographic work, which I spent four years in Ecuador doing. And the other was writing a book that, you know, if I were, which uh, junior scholars are usually, you know, they usually under tremendous pressure to write quickly. And a and first book is often something that's produced in a couple of years. In both cases, I've always sort of just, I've just sort of done my own thing with these things. And I'm, I have to say I'm, I'm happy with the way that turned out.
0: So am I. (laughs) It's an amazing book. I mean, I think it's it's the kind of – the thinking and the conceptual confidence and elaboration here just show the kind of maturity that most of us – Just don't have, frankly, a couple of years, three, four years out of the PhD. And so, well, well, well worth the wait. I think this is really a field changing book in a lot of ways, and not just for um, anthropology, but particularly for STS as well. And Mm -hmm. um, I'm sure Mm -hmm. we're going to get to that. Mm -hmm. So, the beginning of the book, um, to get right into it, it introduces a moment that's going to, (coughs) um, that we're going to see again and again unfolding over the course of the book. This is a moment where you um, explain a conversation where you were um, told when were jaguars are around, sleep face up. So uh-huh. let's start here. Um, can you explain for listeners, especially listeners maybe who, who aren't familiar um, with this idea, what is a, wa- a were jaguar and in what way does this anecdote motivate right at the beginning the kind of work that you want to do um, uh-huh. in, in this part of the book?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, a were-jaguar is sort of like a werewolf. It's a funny term. It's a shape-shifting jaguar, a jaguar that is also a person. Um, and the point of that first anecdote is to sort of, in some ways, seduce the reader or at least uh, create a, a kind of a, a problem for the reader uh, that is difficult to resolve within our um, intellectual framework as anthropologists or as uh, or as humanists who are working, used to working through um, a, a form of argumentation by context or historical convention or culture or social construction. Um, and the idea simply is that in the forest, um, and it doesn't matter so much that it's a jaguar, a person that is transformed to a jaguar, or a jaguar transformed into a person, it's just the fact that in the forest, um One has to interact with uh, jaguars in certain ways and basically because jaguars interpret the world in certain ways. And so it doesn't matter so much how it is that we uh, interpret this. It's getting right how they interpret it. Um, Basically if you encounter jaguar in the forest and you look back at the jaguar, it will treat you as a, a being like itself. If you look away, it will treat you as prey and attack you. And so um, the point here is simply that um, we that there are other kinds of points of view out there, other ways of interpreting things, other ways of representing, and those aren't exactly human. And there are times when we have to get those things right. Um, and if that's true, then all of a sudden... Um, if it's true, for example, about the Runa, uh, these Quito speaking Amazonian people that I was spending time with, um, then we, we to be faithful to what they're up to, we can't just uh, use the, the analytical framework of anthropology, which is one that's based on some sort of version of an argument from culture, um, it doesn't need to be culture in the literal sense of, you know, their belief systems or traditions, but it could be the ways of knowing that are, in some ways, historically contingent or socially given. Um, this example of this inner encounter, or the potential of this encounter with this jaguar, shows that somehow there's an outside to that. <clears throat> there's a there's a, there's a point of view and a form of representing <clears throat> that is not um, just from within. This is not just how the runa think, jaguars think. One has to also tend to how the, how jaguars think. Mm-hmm.
0: And actually, as we move, um, for listeners who might be surprised by even that way of phrasing the problem, right? How jaguars think and the, the book itself, how forests think. As we move further into the book, the what it means to ask that question and to take it seriously and what it means to think in that context is, is part of what the book is all about. So. Hey. As we sort of move into the book, the introduction, um, among other things sets up the general problematics that we're going to see throughout the rest of the chapter. So it's devoted at the same time to rethinking, or as you put it, to opening the human and associated concepts, and also to rethinking the kind of anthropology that would be, as you put it, adequate to this task. So Mm -hmm. early on in the book, um, or in this introduction, you lay out some of the conceptual tools and the the kind of touchstones that um, brought you to this way of thinking about these Mm -hmm. problems, including the work of Philippe Descartes. Escola,
1: mm.
0: Eduardo Vivero Secastro mm. and specifically and well and um, specifically and this is something that's going to lead us into the first chapter mm. the world of Charles or the world and the semiot- uh, the semiotics of Charles Peirce. Right.
1: right so this
0: um, so The importance of Peirce and and his notions and sort of opening up his concepts is something that each one of the chapters in in some way really explicitly or implicitly engage with. And so Mm. let's get right into that because uh, the first chapter really um, lays that out really nicely. Mm. Okay. So chapter one rethinks the relationship between human language and other forms of representation that humans share with non-human beings. Mm-hmm. Um, it opens with this story about a peccary, a kind of pig, and a sonic image. Tsupu.
1: Mm-hmm. At least mm-hmm. that's how I read it, Tsupu. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm.
0: And understanding um, this peca- what's happening with this peccary and, and why this or how this sonic image means really is going to open up um, a way of thinking about how you want to position a kind of ethnography of signs beyond the human. Mm -hmm. And this gets Mm -hmm. us into purse. So can you then maybe start us off as our exploration of this chapter by explaining what's happening with Tsupu and what's important um, to understand about this in order to understand the larger point you're using this to make about signs and semiotics?
1: Right, right. Right. So, yes. So the the chapter asks you... uh, lays out a little scenario uh it's from a story uh, a young guy was was recounting to me and someone else about uh, hunting pigs um and a wounded pig falls into the water and he describes this as tsupu. and so i have the reader uh, guess what this means and the point is that um most people when they try to guess this, uh, the meaning of this um, obviously if they don't speak Kichwa they don't they, they, they don't get it right but the moment I tell them what it does mean Tsupu is a special kind of imagistic kind of word-like thing that means um, it, it's used to describe how an object penetrates and uh, makes contact with and then penetrates a body of water Tsupu the moment I say that, and this is especially apparent like in a big lecture hall you, you can hear people go Oh, uh, yeah. So I'm very interested in that question. It's like, what? How did that happen? Why do you say, yeah? Why is that sense? How can you all of a sudden feel this sort of recognition for something that, um, you know, you're not supposed to know? You don't speak the language, right? And so I, I, I take that little sort of tiny example as a little as a sort of wedge into this larger question about of representation, namely that the way that we think of representation comes from the way we're used to thinking of what we usually think of as that paragon of representation, which is the conventional sign or the arbitrary, the arbitrary and conventional sign, things like the word, uh, the symbol. Um, and my point is that we have a, we all, virtually all of our thinking about either both representation and what is not representation, and this is not just, say, anthropology, but also uh, much of, say, STS, um, is based on this assumption uh, that somehow there's this completely radical break between a sign and its object, which is actually, in some ways, does ac- accurately capture, you know, a purely a pure word as we usually think of it the word that doesn't really have any connection to the thing it represents other than its connection to other words uh, in a kind of network of words so just that little example as again with the, pe- uh, the 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 um the jaguar example in the introduction is an image it's a thought image that it that and this is how i this is the kind of thinking i like to develop um, let's think with this problem and try to um figure out why why it holds what hold it has and what it can do so i 've been fascinated by Tsupu even before well before I knew about the existence of purse um, and the way i want to I try to think about this book it 's not so much and i 've been you know it 's not so much oh eduardo cohn he 's doing this thing and he uses a Persian framework i mean it so happens to be that i 've have stumbled on Pers person I find it very productive. But I, I'm hoping that the reader will appreciate that. I, I don't think it's that I'm applying purse to the forest, but I'm allowing the forest think itself through me. And I'm also using some of Peirce's tools to do that.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's really, at least for me, from the perspective of this reader, which is all I can speak from, um, that's really clear. And- yeah. What's really important in how we understand, at least, again, from my perspective, with the work that's being done with Tsupu and the larger point that you're making about signs um, comes under the – or is, is really nicely encapsulated in this phrase you introduce – in this chapter, provincializing language.
1: Yes, so yes.
0: This is really right. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Because this seems really important. I mean, you're making the claim
1: yes. here,
0: um, that signs are not just. Um, this is not just something that operates in the human realm, and so, so yeah. Can you That's right. just talk about? that?
1: <clears throat> My sense is that, in some ways, uh, I'm going to use extremely broad strokes here. Sure. But um, in some sense, the the birth of the social sciences or the human sciences and I'm thinking back to someone like Durkheim um, and uh, is is based on what you could call a linguistic turn um, whether this is with whether this is laid out in an explicit way or not I don't think Durkheim was thinking about what he was talking about in terms of language or whether it's laid out in a more explicit way say for example with someone like Levi-Strauss or or, 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 or or earlier uh, Boaz. Um Social science in some ways and the humanities uh, are based on an insight that much of what human reality is, um, is the product of um, what you could call very much language like phenomena. So, for example, um, you could describe in formal, in formal terms, I could say, I'm going to say something very jargony, but then I'll unpack it. Um there are many situations in which analytically we use a a formula, that's something like this, that a kind of what we're studying is the ways in which a a, a relatum um, comes into being by virtue of its its relationships to other such relata. Now that sounds very abstract, but let me just sort of play that out through a various series of analytical frameworks. If you think of Durkheim, um, Durkheim's, one of Durkheim's main points was to say, um, you can't understand a social fact or a social institution except by understanding it in terms of other social institutions that sort of sustain it, right? Um, if you think about culture, um, you, 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 the claim is that you can never understand some sort of cultural element in isolation. You have to understand it in terms of the larger meaning system, and you could say the same thing about a kind of Foucaultian genealogical analysis or even the, um, the network of an actor network theory. All of these, all of these um, approaches, whether or not they are uh, explicit or not about it, are taking a certain property of language, a relational property of language, which, is, um, which has to do with the ways in which in a symbolic system – um, a symbol doesn't re- ever relate directly to its object. It relates to a, s- a set of relations among objects by relating to um, a set of relations among signs. So that's a little bit awkwardly put, but um, the, the the idea here is that we are often uh, many, much of our analytical frameworks are it, are, are basically taking. Some, an insight about relationality which is drawn from the properties of language and they are they, they they hold true in many parts of 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 our human lives because we are linguistic creatures and we, our minds are in some ways colonized by language um, that's makes us who we are but the point I want to make is that there's also something beyond that and it and that beyond is something we have access to um, and we need to learn how to how to think about that without constantly falling into thinking about everything in, as if it were language-like. So my call to provincialize language is to be much more explicit about what kinds of things have language-like properties and to recognize that and say, well, other things don't have language-like properties. So this word Tsupu, when I put words into, in scare quotes, um, isn't really a word. It doesn't fully have those language-like properties, even though it's sort of parasitic on language. It's sort of taken along and used in language. And that's sort of in some ways um, – that's a a really nice example of one of the ways in which even those things that seem so symbolic and language-like are actually reaching out into – are actually open to – things that 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 stand beyond it and that's why that chapter is called the open hole somehow language and it creates a, a kind of a hole um like a complex hole and which was tyler's famous uh definition of 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 culture but it's also open and it's that opening that i'm quite in that that, that has that that that, that i want to study uh that's that's the that's the object and goal of this book um, we we know the, how closure works, um, and that of course was an important, uh, hugely important uh, 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 contribution. But uh, it's the opening that we that we need to work on now. Mm-hmm.
0: And before um, we move on from Tsupu to barking, uh, I'll just highlight for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read the book, and I hope um, listeners go out and do so, highly, highly recommend. But you mentioned two words that actually um, are are explored in really wonderfully deep and open ways in the chapter, complex and relationality. Mm -hmm. And so the chapter actually... He's a lot of attention to the importance of relationality, of habits, of patterns, of the mm. reality as such, and of the ways that these create not just holes but complex holes. Mm. Look at you know you consider at various points of the book um, complexity in terms of dynamic systems, right? And so, mm. like this chapter, it's the word complex is not just beside mm. the point, basically, it's mm. not just incidental. I mean, what the symbolic representation is emerging out of a self-organizing dynamic? System here, so
1: right? It's really, right. I think that's really right. interesting. Yeah, yes. So
0: from Tsupu to barking. So the second chapter, the living thought, opens with a moment that involves three barking dogs, and yeah. this moment is going to ask us to, um, or is going to allow us to explore the question. Not just how do dogs think, but what does it mean to think? And by extension, what does it mean to be alive? And so yeah. can you talk a little bit about um, these three barking dogs? What's happening with these dogs? And what does this anecdote also open up in terms of the larger um, arguments that you're making here about um, about thinking and about what it means to think and be alive? Yeah. And yeah. yeah, can you talk about that?
1: Yeah, so this uh, anecdote um, was... Um, Basically, it was an event that became a very important event in the lives of the people I was living with and also in my field work and It happened probably a couple of years into the into the project um, there was uh, there were, the, the there were some people out uh, in the household where I was living uh, some people went out to um harvest uh fish poison and the dogs were trailing along and um they were, we later learned, they were attacked and killed by a jaguar. Um, what this became a very yeah, a puzzle. What what actually happened to these dogs was a huge puzzle, and was was un was revealed through a, a variety of. Of, of things, it, and it forced them people to think how dogs were thinking. Um, it forced them to pay attention to their own dreams and figure out um, what they were dreaming. It forced them to think about what their dogs might or might not have dreamt. Um, so it became a very interesting thing. But the particular example that I, I start with has to do with a statement or a conversation that the women were having, and it had to do. It has to do with um, imagining what the dogs. Failed to notice why? How could they have gotten to a scenario where they attacked the dogs the way that the 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 dogs attacked? The dogs did what they did, Um, and it seems that from the barks that the women heard, that they thought that the dogs had tried to attack something that then attacked them, Um, and they said they got together and they're like, oh, you know, there's only one thing that could have happened. They must have um, confused a mountain lion, a mountain lion. With a deer, they must have thought that they were attacking a deer, which was actually a mountain lion. Now, this seems kind of preposterous, and um, but it doesn't—it doesn't really matter for the point uh, that I'm trying to make, which is simply that to imagine how um, a being thinks, one has to also imagine the productive, uh, in in the broadest of terms, the productive ways in which confusion is. Um, creates a kind of thought, creates a kind of a relationship. Mm-hmm. And it, it, and specifically, a kind of stupidity is a form of thinking. Um, I often say that... Um, I, I, tr- I try to provoke my anthropology students in my big introductory lecture classes that what I love about anthropology is that it's a flaky science <laughs> and that I myself am a sort of a flake. And this is um, exactly the sort of thing that, I'm, that intrigues me. Um, how is it that... Um, at the heart of thinking, there is something that is not thought like at all, um, that it's sort of essential. It, it involves a kind of confusion. And this is an introduction to uh, one sort of theme that is extremely important throughout the book, which is um, the power, this productive power of not noticing difference. And the ways in which um, although we tend to think of Thought, thought as based on difference um, so sir will say that at the heart of all of all semiology it's difference is the is the one thing that sort of organizes it all um, that I, I think that there's actually something else much more counterintuitive at the heart of stuff which is absence and confusion and in some ways the book um, the, one of the larger arguments of the book is to sort of get at this weird, Counterintuitive property that is intrinsic to life. Um,
0: mm-hmm. Now, one of the, thank you for that, by the way, I'm not I'm just, you're really lost in thought, um, just based on what you just said. But let's come back so that we're not so lost. Um, yeah. Or at least I'm, I'm not sort of lost in that moment. And I, I'll just mention the reason why I'm articulating that is that this is an example of many times when reading the book where i stopped and came away from it and really got launched into a completely new way of thinking and seeing and this is this happens throughout the book for the reader at least it for Mm -hmm. me and it's Mm -hmm. one of the reasons i really love the book but okay back to selfhood so you're showing in this chapter that selfhood is not just limited to animals with brains and it's not just limited right. to humans and this actually brings up a really important critique of contemporary STS. Mm-hmm. So You are critiquing in this chapter in a way that I think is very productive the way STS tends to treat non-humans generically and really missing the distinction between selves on the one hand and objects or artifacts Mm -hmm. on the other. Um, Can you talk a little bit about that? Because that seems to me to be an extraordinarily important and productive critique.
1: Yeah. I mean, in some ways, um, there's a certain part of STS, uh, which can be in some ways captured through, um, you can think of a much, uh, a certain part of say Bruno Latour's career. Um, although I think it's quite, um, uh, I, well, I think there, there are many parts of, of what he's up to, especially in the, in his current project, um, of yeah. the in- inquiry into modes of existence where lots of different kinds of, um, lots of different kinds of realities uh he's playing with uh, trying to figure out how to be true to and translate among lots of different kinds of realities but there's a certain moment in sts uh that has that sort of um that that is responding to the same problem that that i'm i'm working with and others are that somehow this social construction stuff is a real problem um that social construction in some ways creates two kinds of things. The, the, the reality out there that we can either say exists or doesn't and the thing that we represent and create. And this is obviously a big problem. And so uh, ST, this sort of traditional STS, so those actor network theory, is, is an attempt to um, somehow get, get, get beyond uh, that social construction. But the way that it tends to be done is to somehow through a kind of reduction. I mean, it's not called that. Um, in fact, it's sometimes called irreduction. But it's 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 effectively reduction in the sense that um, there's a kind of flattening, an ontological flattening. The way in which you create a relationship or you recognize relationships among different kinds of entities is to treat them as if they were the same kinds of entities. Um, and so, yes, Things and selves and objects and artifacts uh, all get sort of uh, are create are, are treated as the same kind of thing. Now the problem is that that um, that erases certain kinds of very real differences, um, and and it also forces us often to account for certain sorts of relationships by sneaking in very human like kinds of qualities back into the thing. So you get. Things that have very much thing-like properties, and humans that acquire very much thing-like properties, but then the whole thing gets sort of motivated by certain kinds of intentions that seem extremely human, um, and that also requires uh, a lot of uh, linguistic dexterity uh, from the point of view of the writer and humor. And I'm not so good at that. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> um, but yeah, that's uh, that's the short answer um, to to what I'm getting at, but. But self, what self is, uh, I sort of try to get at what I think of sort of minimally. Uh, part of what this, one of the strategies of this book is to show that things that we take, um, we, I guess in some ways we, we, our general way to, of looking at stuff is to say, okay, there's all this human stuff which we understand really well, like symbolic thought and language and culture and those sorts of things and mm-hmm. ethics and, Power or whatever, Um, and then there's this world of stuff out there that we kind of use um, some sort of kind of physics sort of understanding to understand how that works. So this is a sort of mind body dualism, and part of my project is to sort of show that there's actually a whole a whole bunch of these things that that we kind of know from the sort of full blown human. In the full blown full blown human examples, things like self or representation actually have much more pervasive simpler versions and by simpler I don't mean i don't this is not an ethical or i don't mean uh, sorry I don't mean to pass judgment on it but more pervasive mm-hmm. um less hierarchical um, versions so uh, and and to understand that one once one appreciates that then one can see how. We humans are actually sort of related to many more kinds of things. So, self, I'm very interested in saying, well, there's actually a very, there are some very simple ways to think about what self and thought are, um, which uh, m- large, m- well, life, life, sh- wherever it is found, will have, will exhibit, and uh, those things stand in continuity with the kinds of things that we do. Mm-hmm.
0: And you show actually, you go on to show in the next chapter, staying with this theme of self and understanding what it is to be this uh, to be a self. That to be a self and to be an object are not necessarily um, two different kinds of things that don't coexist. And so, chapter three considers the challenges and considers the issues involved in living as a self within ecology within an ecology of other selves. And specifically, um, you look at the relationships here of, um, different kinds of selves living in this ecology in terms of life and death. So specifically, Mm -hmm. what does it mean to be a hunter that's Mm -hmm. simultaneously, right? Aware of, and respecting the fact that you are living in a web of relationalities with other selves and also Mm -hmm. killing some of those selves, right? Right. Right. Or, you know, and what happens when, um, you die yourself. And so, um, can you, talk about that in terms of um, the work that this chapter is doing this is a chapter called soul blindness and it really explores sort of what happens in the in terms of the relationship between self and object when we bring death into life
1: yeah so uh, soul blindness is a really important chapter in the book in the sense that it's sort of in some ways I mean the whole book is ethnographic but in the chapters one and two I'm really I'm really laying out. Um, I'm laying out some something about of an, of an analytical framework, um, and in chapter three and four, I really start to get into some sort of practical, everyday problems that people face. And one is sort of the foremost here is how do you how do you negotiate um, how do you deal with the world in which um, you're so aware of the selfhood of all of the various beings that you're forced to hunt. And what kind of contradictions is that that, uh, that bring up? And in the process, I'm trying to get at, I guess, two things. One is, as you mentioned, and this is all will sort of come to fruition in Chapter 6, in the final chapter, mm-hmm. is the constitutive role of death in life. So, you know, you can't think of life without death. And the other has to do with sort of um, and it's something else, which is sort of... Um, Central to this book, which is uh, thinking of our own psychic, our, our own psychic lives, um, and the the fact that for us humans, um, this contradiction, this this the, this close link between life and death, um, is so difficult for us to wrap our heads around, um, our own mortality, you could say, and in some ways, hunters uh, are dealing with this all the time. They have to. Uh, so it's sort of, this is where a place where sort of the ethnography uh, kind of lays out some of the sort of what I've co- what I called here following Cora Diamonds from the difficulties of reality that we we face as humans, uh, sort of aware of this contradiction that just doesn't really make sense how life is wrapped up with death, how death is wrapped up with life. Um, mm-hmm
0: and there's also um i want well i want to move on to the pigeons um but i want to just mention for listeners there's also a really some really wonderful things going on in that chapter that consider um, just the physicality of fatherhood among oh, yeah. them in this context yeah the the figure of the predator why so much of the of the experiences that you're relating here have something to do with a predator figure and predation um, right. and there's just a wonderful discussion of uh, of uh, Cavell also, Cavell's work and his concept of little deaths. And so there's a lot. Right. Um, this is one of, you know, all of the chapters are like this. There's so much we could talk about in every single one of them. They're extraordinarily rich. So,
1: well, um, oh, sorry, go ahead. Know, I, I was just going to say just a little add on that. This, one of the things that's so interesting, I, I mean, there's something, this book is Thought of is, ins- I mean, I think of it as something general, and I want to say something general about how forests think. And part one of my ethnographic, ob- one of my ethnographic objects is generality itself. Mm-hmm. But there's something specific and very ethnographically particular about um, Runa ways and Amazonian ways of thinking about relationality through predation, and that's uh, extremely well developed. Is, for example, in the works of Eduardo Ribeiro Zacastro. Castro. Um, In fact, he's just written a book called *Cannibal Metaphysics*, Hmm. um, which is sort of an exploration of this kind of ontology of Runa—not Runa, sorry, Amazonian Amerindian ontology of of, that involves predation, but it's also the ways in which that such a way of thinking about things or such an ontology actually has the possibility of eating or cannibalizing, um, our very own philosophical frameworks. So predation sort of plays a really nice role in that. Um, but yeah, it's just incredibly important ethnographically. Um, that's how we, we that's sort of the sort of ecological relationship that, that many Amazonians are, are, are the most interested in.
0: Awesome. I'm going to go look up that book <laughs> after we stop, stop yeah. talking as well. So yeah. as we move here, you've mentioned um, several times already the dreaming dogs, right? the dog's yes. dreams. And as we move into the next chapter on trans species pigeons, we move into these dreams. Now, it's all right. not all, uh, one of the beautiful things throughout the book, but um, certainly in this chapter, is that you're not just showing this kind of co-constitutive nature of life and death, but also yeah. within the experience of life and the being of life, wakefulness and dreaming are also both really, really important aspects mm. of what it means to live and to be a self. And so dreams recur over and over again throughout the book. And right. um, at least in my experience, it really uh, made me pay more attention in some right. ways to my own dreaming as right. a result of this. Right. So, so this chapter um, uses this notion of a trans species pigeon mm. to think about and the question of um, what does it mean to interpret the dreams of dogs, right? What does it mean right. um, to live with dogs, and how are dogs themselves who, or which, who, Mm-hmm. <laughs> pronouns, yeah. pronouns. Right. Yes. I mean, dogs are really central to the life yes. of, of um, the runa in this book. And so you're really looking closely at what does it mean for a dog to, to survive in this context and um, what is and what does communication yeah. look like? And so can you talk a little bit about this idea of a trans species pigeon, specifically in the context of um, the dogs and the runa they're living with? How does this work and why is this or in what way is this important to the kind of work that this um, chapter is doing
1: well. This chapter, like the previous one, but even more so, is really um, you know I've in some ways I start the book out sort of moving away from the culture concept, and by culture I mean you know, things that have to do with historical contingency. Um, but of course, that's this that's not really accurate to what's going on in the world, and and uh, the Runa like everyone, but the Runa specifically. Uh, are living in a world that is not just the world of a, some sort of pristine non-human forest they're living in a world um, that has uh, that has echoes of uh, of the colonial history that they've lived um, from the Spanish conquest on up to today um, and so um, when they relate to the beings of the forest, in some ways the forest houses, holds, all sorts of things, including all these layers of history. Uh, And this chapter is an attempt to sort of begin to really bring that stuff back in. I didn't want to bring it in right away, I mean, I allude to it, but um, because I wanted to go against the sort of anthropological move of always starting with complexity, um, of, of taking something, you know, oh, look, to understand anything, say the rune, you have to understand their entire, complete complex history right that's for me like going back and looking at things in terms just of language um because when you say complexity in that sense you're saying one thing related to another thing related to another thing in some sort of system of relations so i was trying to sort of not do that up until now where i feel like now that i have explained enough of these sorts of other things that are not that don't have those properties i can go back to bring some of bring some of this in and the dog human relationship actually brings out many of the relationships that the runa have with with many other kinds of beings in a colonial history especially uh with uh whites and um, non-indigenous peoples so that's what i was sort of i was trying to bring in uh, i was part of that part of that um that, that chapter, and especially with this image of trans-species pigeons, I'm bringing in some of those elements. That is to say that when people are, are interacting with their dogs, trying to uh, talk to them, they're also they're forced to sort of create a language, a shared language that is neither of the one or the other language here in parentheses, a shared form of communication. Um, and in some ways that is a pigeon um, both, and I mean that sort of in in just the sense that it's two species uh, that have to sort of communicate in some ways, but I also mean it in the more sort of historical sense that this is a a form of language uh, that's usually coming together in, in colonial or colonially inflected contact situations. So I want to bring that sort of awareness in, because it's so important to who the, the runa are, that um, and to the problems they're facing, that um, This is not just about um, the runa and animals of the forest, but it's also the runa in, in, in a historical context.
0: And it also, the way that this communicative strategy works also brings out the importance of the fact that all of these selves in this context are all in some way transforming, right? I mean, the, the fact of the communication in this example with the dogs being possible depends on altering the dogs in some way, right? Giving the dogs a certain kind of a drug substance. Mm-hmm. Right. and you're showing basically that in order to survive as a dog in Avila the dog has to become human in literally right um, in in an important way so it's a really important reminder that we're not just talking about these static selves that just exist out there and are relating to each other mm. as kind of you know as as uh, stable individuals but they are transformative individuals that are transformed and transforming based on the relationality that they necessarily exist within and so i think that's a really important um thing to keep in mind
1: yeah and 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 one thing that's it's so important in amazonia and it's such a sort of powerful mode of being is sort of what you could call a shamanistic mode the 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 possibility um uh, that one can learn to actualize certain kinds of realities by, um, by seeing, by finding ways to recognize the, 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 the self in other kinds of beings. Um, and this is, um, this is extremely important and it's, and it's something that sort of, it's a way of being, it's a form of politics, um, that is in some ways foreign to us, um, and the funny thing about this chapter is that I'm exploring it by not because, not not so much in terms of the way in which the runa are shamans, but the ways in which they force their dogs to become shamans, mm-hmm. right? Usually, uh, people become shamans to be able to enter the points of view of spirits. In this case, the chapter is about the ways in which the runa um, help their dogs become shamans so that they can enter the points of view of humans. Um, but it's always about this, this, this. Possi- what can happen if you can actualize certain kinds of relationships that may not be always visible or apparent to you from your normal point of view? And that's that's a very sort of important sort of Amazonian way of sort of being. Um, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Thank you. So. This- Continuing along um, our consideration of the importance of dreams, the next chapter also begins with a dream. And it begins with um, recounting a puzzling dream that you um, have or that you had about a peccary that you experienced. And you, you use that dream to open up the larger issues of the chapter. Now, this chapter is all about, um, among other things, the anthropological significance of form. Mm-hmm. Um, the, and this is a, an absolutely fascinating um Concept and kind of work that you're doing here, and I think probably the best way of treating this is just to to ask you to talk about it. Um, so can you can you talk about your notion of form? What is it? How is it working here? And what do we need to understand about form as you're um, laying it out in this chapter in order to understand something important about the larger arguments that you're making in the book?
1: Yeah. So. Um- in our normal sort of dualistic way of thinking about things we have, there's two kinds of objects or two kinds of entities that we're comfortable talking about. One is mind, human mind, and the other is thing. Um, And throughout um, much of the book, I sort of chipped away at that dualism by expanding what we think of mind to the point, to the point where, um, uh, you know, life, life and mind becomes synonymous and mind therefore changes. And of course I've developed a whole bunch of conceptual tools out of that, um, that things like constitutive absence or the, the sense that somehow, um, images are at the heart of thought and these kinds of things I, I was talking about, um, in the earlier chapters. But there's another sort of piece of, of, there's another piece to this, which is, um, that, which has to do with form. um, the ways in which, uh, it, it, the ways in which um, pattern or things that are sort of redundant um, tend to have their own sorts of properties. And uh, this um, isn't necessarily alive, although life uses it all the time, um, and it's not thing-like either, but it, it, it requires thinking with because it's so central to life and thought. Um, so that's what this chapter explor- explores. And... Um, I sort of get at it again with another dream, uh, this one of my own, of trying to, you know, I had a very profound experience with a pig, profound for me and perhaps for the pig, I don't know, but um, I had sort of a, a weird moment of sort of intersubjective encounter where I was, looking, I was looking at a pig in the eyes for a few moments in the forest, um, and I dreamt about this sort kind of intensely, and this, I dreamt, I won't get into the details of it, but in the dream, um, I had again a contact with that pig, except the pig now was not in the forest, but was in was in a um, was in a, a kind of a ranch. It was in a, it, it was in a it was in it was in a, on a farm, in a in a in like a, a a pen, and the 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 point that I um that I that I try to lay out there is why is it i try to answer is why is it that i dreamt that way and it turns out that that's a a very common way in which people dream about the spirits of the forest they see a kind of parallel uh between um a formal parallel between the the forest and um all sorts of domestic spaces like ranches and so that sort of forces me to get into why those why those spaces might be the same and why is it that I might sort of start dreaming like others um, even when I wasn't necessarily inculturated into their world. And my answer is that both the parallel between an earth, certain kinds of domestic spaces and certain kinds of forest spaces and the parallel and, and the fact that I can start dreaming uh, like others has to do with understanding how... If, formal resonances work and how forms propagate through different settings. So in fact, I kind of, my dreaming took on the form of Amazonian dreaming, um, uh, in the same way that the estates and these other kinds of farm, like situations, uh, ex- extractive economies of colonists in the Amazon take on the form in some ways of hunting of, of the forest ecology itself. Um, and I have a whole bunch of complicated explanations as to why that is, but the point is that somehow those kinds of propagations are what are at the heart of that chapter. In the weird sort of effortless way in which these sorts of things happen, and they're not really alive, uh, they're not thing like, they're not mind like, but they're they're form like, mm-hmm.
0: and they exist, and they have, the, and they act upon the world.
1: Yeah, they exist, but they exist in a weird way, in the sense that it's sort of like the difference between being hit by a wave and riding a wave right so you can be hit by a wave and be be sort of convinced of the existence of the wave and of course in some ways that your your something that wave is doing something to you but being in the wave nothing is happening although you're sort of you're in it and so there's that that sort of the difference between being in form and outside of form is sort of I explore in that chapter and the epigraph of it is about um a monastery and a, and a zen monk saying um the people outside the monk uh, the monastery uh, um can can understand what's going on can feel that something is happening but those who are inside it never notice anything um right. and uh, that that's sort of weird kind of it, I'll just, it's uh, it is the people who are outside of the monastery who feel its atmosphere. Those who are practicing actually do not feel anything. That's from Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. This sort of idea that what is it being inside form is this weird sort of this weird sort of experience of of uh, that is, but it also has a kind of it comes out in my ethnography. It's, that's what it's like to be in the realm of the spirits, for example. Um,
0: so it's sort of simultaneously effortless, but also um, shapes life experiences. Like it, it's, it determines modes of living at the same time that the experience of being in form feels effortless.
1: Yeah, and, and it requires all this skill. Like, say you're a surfer, right? It's like. You know, to be riding the wave is in some ways effortless, but you got to be able to do a push-up, a big push-up to get up on the wave. You've got to have all sorts of skill and knowledge. I mean, it's the same sort of thing uh, with hunters. Like, they're constantly using harnessing form. Like, as I mentioned, um, they actually don't just go around the forest looking for animals. They know the patterns that attract animals, the patterns of fruiting trees, for example. Um, they go to... They, they, they sort of know those shifting geometries because things fruit at different times of the year. Um, uh, it's not like in temperate regions where you just have the spring, right? Um, so they know there's all these weird shifting geometries and people just know where to go. Um, so they're harnessing form, but of course you need to walk great distances, you need to have all sorts of skills. So, um, And it's not just about being in form in some sort of Zen way, it's doing something with it, right? Right. They don't want to just go into the spirit realm, they want to come back with Um, meat.
0: And this, for listeners, um, and I'll, we'll move to the future
1: <laughs> in yeah, a moment, right.
0: um, but for listeners also who are interested in particular in the ways that you're engaging ideas of emergence here, there's, there's also a really interesting set of points you're making in this chapter about forms being emergent, and you're showing right. kind of self-similarity across scale, which I don't, I don't think I read, I don't know that you're using the term fractal, but it sort of brings to mind a kind of fractal way of thinking yeah, about.
1: That's yeah. right. That's right. So
0: there's a ton more we could talk about in this chapter, but I want to make sure we talk at least a little bit about um, chapter six. Now, this chapter opens up by taking us into another dream. Um, And here it's a dream of a hunter who dreams of a policeman wearing a shirt that's covered in hair clippings. And the significance of this um, is, is explored in great detail in the chapter. Now, the dream in this part of the book becomes a way of thinking again about the general problem of how to be a self within the ecology of runa selves and perhaps beyond and related to this way of thinking and and related to this general problem is a larger point you're making here about the temporality of selfhood sort of what it means to exist with time in time um, as time as a self life here specifically um, as you're arguing involves the future bearing upon the present. Um, so this seems to be a good place to get into, um, this chapter and open it up a little bit. Can you talk about what's happening here in terms of the, the concept of the future? What kind of work is the future doing? And, um, what do we need to understand about that to understand the kind of work that this chapter is doing?
1: Yes. So basically, again, I start with the riddle of a, of a, of a dream. Um, and the dream is about, uh, what looked like a nightmare. Um, A guy dreams that he's getting a haircut and in sort of Amazonian sort of thinking about things, getting a haircut means it it means killing a pig or that a pig is killed because the bristles, as you mentioned alluded to bristles sit on the person's shirt. um, Like when you get a haircut and you get hair on your shoulders. Um, So, um, And that's all, you know, that the thing was that the guy who dreamt this didn't know whether this meant that in, in the context of the dream, there's a policeman who comes up to him with uh, who, who uh, hair on his shoulders. So in the dream, he didn't know whether it was, uh, whether he, the dreamer, was the pig, um, which would be a terrible dream, right? Because he is now, again, in this predatory way of thinking about things, he has just confronted his predator, which in this case is a white policeman, Um in some ways like a jaguar also, but, it, but actually was a white policeman in the dream. Or or as it turned out, the when he recalled this dream to me was later on in the day when he had just killed a pig himself in the forest. And he says, oh, actually it turns out I thought I'd had a nightmare, but actually it was a good dream because I was the predator, which means that he was the white policeman. So the question here is sort of in what ways um, <clears throat> does becoming... Um, how is it that, in some ways, becoming this sort of white policeman, how is that central to survival? And uh, there's a lot of sort of ethnography that has to be sort of explained here. I won't get into it, but, but very briefly, uh, the spirits of the forest um, are uh, beings that are sort of portrayed like white policemen, uh, w- often thought of as whites. Um, and the argument that I make through a variety of different sort of other channels in the in the chapter is that, in some ways, for for this man to survive he had to in some ways um, al- see himself through the medium of his dreams and the way in which the dream sort of connected to the to the, to the the reality of the forest um, from the point of view of his future self in the future as the spirit. So in some ways, he had to see himself sort of in form, in the form of the spirits, not being attacked by a spirit as if that the, the white or the spirit was killing him, but he had to sort of become the spirit who was the attacker um, and that required a special relationship to the future and I, and one of the things I talk about there is how this sort of links ethnographically to how people think about um, time and the spirits um, but also how it links to um, many things a way of seeing biology as constitutively always based on a kind of futurity um, in some ways all Life and all signs are dependent on this weird sort of relationship with a, a, rep, a, a future that's that's represented, right? So when um, when a jaguar uh, tries to pounce on a, on, a, on an agouti, a kind of wild rodent, um, that jaguar is not going to get anywhere by say, by pouncing on where that agouti is. The, the jaguar is going to have to sort of go guess in some ways where the agouti will be and it's that um, bringing into that future into the present which yeah. is, you can see in lots of all over where wherever there's life you see this kind of a dynamic it's the future position of the of the of the agouti that becomes important to where the jaguar will be and this is not it, this is, does not necessarily require consciousness, um, but it's something that is is is, is central. The sort of the the role that future plays in life is is very important, and so that's what ultimately this this chapter is about. But it's also not just again about uh, life in the biological sense, although it is, but it's also about the psychic life, and it's about psychic survival, including survival in. This dense ecology, which is not only a tropical biological ecology, which it is, of course, but it's also a dense, histor- densely layered historical ecology where to survive means to find a place within uh, the detritus of a colonial encounter.
0: Well, Eduardo I've taken up a lot of your time um, there's so much more about the book that we could talk about that we haven't had a chance to and, I'll, and for example I, I haven't asked you anything about the photographs right which oh, yes. um, the book is full of these really wonderful photographs that similarly to the way the you know the sound of a peccary you talk about in the context of being a sonic image I mean these photographs very much are visual images that are not mm. just illustrate illustrations mm. right I mean they're mm. doing a really important kind of, um, I think, narrative work um, yeah, in dialogue yeah. with the the written prose. Um, right. That's very, very effective. So there's a ton that we could talk about about the book. It's extraordinarily rich. Is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention for listeners, and perhaps especially for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read the book?
1: Well, I just wanted to say, maybe just in two seconds, just just expand on what you just said about the, the images. Sure. In some ways, uh, the point of the book is that, that um, forests uh, do think uh, and, and that that sort of thinking is available to us. So the question is not just sort of making the claim that forests think. The quest- The point is to say you too can think like forests. You too can think in this sort of imagistic way. And that's, this, these photos are, are t- intended to do this. It's a, it's it's the sort of thinking that forests do through images. And the point is, and this is something I, I don't necessarily um, underscore, I do say it in the book, but I want to say it sort of more forcefully, is that this is a kind of thinking uh, that, um, that we need to learn to do in the Anthropocene. Uh, we live now in a world uh, in which humans um, are forces of nature. And... Um, and we had part of what we're doing is we're we're changing that we are thinking force are under threat, uh, but in part because we are in some ways perhaps um, I don't want to be romantic about it. I don't want to say exactly that we've learned we've forgotten how to think and fo- think with force. But I'm convinced that the solutions to our problems yeah. will will somehow come from our abilities to that we already have inside us to think with and like forests.
0: Well, thank you. This is, um, it's, it's an extraordinarily moving book. It's been a very, very provocative mm-hmm. and moving conversation for me. Um, and congratulations on the book. I think this is, this is a field changer. I mean, this yeah. is going to be something that um, does now and is going to continue to really make a difference. So now that the book is out, um, what's next for you? Thinking, speaking of futures, is there any uh, project or are there any projects that are currently inspiring you?
1: Yes. Um, in fact, this builds on the same question of, of images in the Anthropocene. Um, the two sort of areas, the, the, there's, I guess, three areas where I'm moving. Um, one is to think, uh, to, to, to actually methodologically think with images. Um, and uh, along with my partner and colleague, Lisa Stevenson, we've been making ethnographic films, uh, and we're continuing to do this. Um, and the idea there is, uh, how can we actually actually put into practice a form of ethnography which is non-discursive uh, that is not just write about it but actually do it uh, and image making is is, is, is is the way to do that so that's one area the other area that I'm working on is again on taking this sort of thinking force idea and actually uh, moving more concretely to questions of the Anthropocene and thinking about how to um, how how to think uh, how to think in with the Anthropocene in in practical political ways because I do think that this is the these are the stakes uh, for our our projects um, and then the final thing that I'm doing which is a bit perhaps more short term is to think in some ways the way I introduced this um, the, the, this interview is I said that the, in some ways this book is a reaction to the linguistic turn. Um Well, one could say that the, 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 the that this book is then also part of what might what might be called the ontological turn mm-hmm. um, in scholarship to think um, and to think beyond uh, human realities as we know them. Uh, and so one of my goals right now is to think about that in more sort of explicit ways, comparing other similar sort of ontological projects and sort of being, try to say something more general about what sort of this ontological turn is about.
0: That's fabulous. Um, I have, I have a feeling we're going to be talking in much more and measure greater length about some of these
1: projects yes, the future. Yes, but yes. in the
0: meantime, thank you so much, Eduardo. It's really been a pleasure and oh. I'm just so thrilled to have had a chance to read the book and talk with you about it.
1: Thanks, Thanks so much, Carla, and thanks so much for your wonderful questions and your patience uh, <laughs> to sit with it. Yeah.
0: You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks for joining us. I'm will look forward to seeing you next time.